verses 11 through 27, uh, we're going to be looking at this um, uh, rather well-known parable of Jesus. And um, just to keep everybody uh, a reminder, so as we celebrate on the days that we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, we, uh, we have the families worship together, and I know that oftentimes this can be a, a little challenging for, for parents, and, uh, um, but I think it's, it's good that, that children worship with their parents and, um, and learn that the church, they're part of the church. Um, we just don't shuffle them off somewhere um, at all times, but they, they, they need to be part of the church. And so, anyways, um, <clears throat> what this means is if your kids get a little wiggly or vocal or anything like that, um, we will praise the Lord for wiggly kids, wiggly and vocal kids. So, um, we are grateful that we have wiggly and vocal children in our midst. So, um, <clears throat> praise God. So, back to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. One of the things I, I just want to help remind you of, I want to kind of make sure that we understand the context of where, where we're going. I know we've, we've been in Luke for, for quite some time, and uh, we, I was looking, it's like, well, we only have a few more chapters left, but when I started kind of dividing it up and looking about how many weeks we have left, I mean, in my Bible, it's only like four pages, um, but... When I started dividing it up and seeing how we might break up the next, this last section, it's like, well, gosh, we've got another six months or so um, to get through this. And so, but that's okay. You know, we've got time, right? What are we going to do? We're going to study God's Word every Sunday anyway, so it can be Luke or it can be something else. But when we're done, we'll, we'll go somewhere else and be there as long as the Lord will have us there. So um, I'm in no hurry to finish, but I'm also in, in no hurry to to belabor it either, just we'll go through God's word. So the context here is uh, is that Jesus has been really since chapter nine, we're nineteen for the past ten chapters. Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem. So Luke, you can see, spends significant time re- uh, recounting Jesus's travel to Jerusalem, and he's going to Jerusalem not for vacation but for crucifixion. He's going there to offer himself up as the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. He is offering himself. He's there, going there to offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And so he's on his way. And of course, as he's traveling, he's teaching his disciples about discipleship, what it means. Because remember, he's going to die and he's going to go away. He's going to raise on the third day. And then he's going to go away. He's going to ascend into heaven. And he's going to leave the disciples there to carry on his mission. So, he's teaching them about the mission that they're going to have to carry on. And so today we're going to continue to learn a little bit about what it means to be a follower of Christ, especially what it means to be a follower of Christ in the interim between his ascension and his uh, return. So that's, that's where we're, we're going. There's a little bit of a, a conflation there between both context and overview. But Jesus, we saw last week, healed a blind man. Or not last week, a couple weeks ago, healed a blind man. He also, last week, we saw him forgive this tax collector. And so, all of these things are leading or bringing Christ to Jerusalem. Um, Next week, we'll see the triumphal entry. We'll see him weeping over Jerusalem, cleansing the temple as he begins what we call the Passion Week, his last week on on earth. Um, 
Uh, just, so that's kind of where, where we've been. Just a quick overview. Like I said, this is a parable. We're going to talk today about a parable that it informs his disciples, you and his disciples right then and there, but also you and I, about how does one live their lives as a follower of Christ in the interim between his ascension and his coming again? So how do we live our lives today? How do we live our lives tomorrow and this week and until whenever the Lord sovereignly returns and, um, and consummates the kingdom? So how do we live our lives? That's where we're, we're, we're going to see. What we're going to see is we're going to see three types of people. I was going to begin this um, message with there are two types of people in this world, those who divide the world into two types of groups and those who divide the world into three types of people. And so there are three types of people. And um, we see the faithful, we see the false um, follower, we see faithful followers, false followers, and we see people who are enemies of Christ. So um, faithful, false, and foes. Um, I'm not very good at alliteration. I stole that from somebody. Um, but it works, okay? So it's not mine. It is not original, but they probably stole it from somebody too. So um, that's what we do as preachers. We read something that we like, and we say, hey, that, that works really well. So we're going to see three types of people, faithful, false, and foes. Now, so let's go ahead. Let's read our text today, and then we'll proceed to, uh, to see what God would speak to us through his gracious word. So listen to the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But, to, but from the one who has not, even, that, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And this ends the reading of God's inerrant and holy word. We should make sure that we understand the setting here. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's been passing through Jericho. Jericho is about 17, 18 miles um, downhill from Jerusalem. So he's, he's on his way there. It says he's on, so after he, they heard these things, um, so he's 
been pa- he's been he's in Jericho. He's been passing through Jericho. Um, he's a few miles away. You know, a good six-hour walk to to Jerusalem, six seven-hour walk to Jerusalem. And after they heard these things, so we always ask ourselves, well, what things? Whenever you read these things in the Bible, the next question should always be, what things? Right. So, just a little Bible study tip there. So, after these things, and then our mind goes to what things? Well, the things that he's been talking about, obviously, um, he's, been, he's been using kingdom language. He's been talking about the coming of the kingdom. He's been talking about um, the establishment of the kingdom. But he has also um, been healing people and forgiving them of their sins. These are very messianic um, actions. These are, these are things that people thought that or, or understood the Messiah to do, especially healing a blind man. Healing a blind man was a messianic act, an act that the Messiah, when Messiah comes, these are the things that he's going to do. He's going to establish a kingdom, and Jesus has been talking about a kingdom, and he's healing um, blind men, and, and, he's, and he's forgiving people of their sins, and they're seeing the change of hearts and, and hard men like Zacchaeus. And so after these things, he begins to tell them a parable. Why? Tells us. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here's the reason why this, we need to understand, why is this parable told? It's told because he's near Jerusalem, he's going to offer himself up, he's near Jerusalem, they're thinking that the kingdom is to appear immediately. So when they're thinking when he enters in Jerusalem, he's going to kick all the bums out. And he's going to establish his kingdom and he is going to reign on earth. So he's going to tell them a parable because he's near to Jerusalem and these people have a completely wrong idea about who he is. He's going to tell them a little bit about this. He wants to, he wants to correct that idea. He wants to correct that false idea that he is going to establish his kingdom in its fullness upon arrival in Jerusalem. And you have to understand this was a really difficult um, concept for his disciples, even after his resurrection. Remember in Acts, is it at this time that you're going to establish your kingdom? Even in Acts, they're still thinking, well, maybe now you're going to set up your kingdom on earth. And then he tells them, no, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, um, but your job is to preach the gospel. There's a great message there. It is not for us to know the times and the seasons. We are not to be too concerned about when Jesus decides to return to set up his kingdom. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. So, anyways, that's another sermon, or maybe a point later on in this sermon, or perhaps both. But, how did I get off? So, anyways, this is a difficult concept. So, he's going to tell a parable to help his disciples and you and I understand um, how do we live our lives in the interim between his resurrection and his coming again. I, I trust and pray that this will give us some hope some encouragement. I think it gave hope and encouragement to his, to his disciples because here's the thing, for a period of time, Jesus will be absent. I don't think they saw that. That wasn't in their heads. That wasn't in their hearts. That wasn't in their, their thought process that there's going to be a time where Messiah is going to show up and then he's going to go away and then come back. That just wasn't in the game plan that they understood. So he's going to let them know that, listen, um, I'm going to die, I'm going to go away, but in the interim, this is how you are to live. And so during the time of his absence, you should note this, he's still king. And we are accountable to him. So Jesus does not become king when he returns. Jesus right now is king. 
He has received the kingdom. The kingdom is his. He right now is king, and we are to live accountable to him. And that's what he's going to teach his disciples. And he does it through the use of a parable. And he tells this parable that a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then he's going to come back. And he commissions some of his servants to do business while he's away. So I'm going to, there's a, there's a nobleman. He's going to go into a far country. He's going to get a kingdom. Um, until he comes, he's going to come back. But, but until then, I'm going to commission some of my people, some of my servants. I'm going to commission them to do business in my name until I come back. That's the first thing. The second thing we should note is that there are people who do not like this king. They do not want him to be king. In fact, they hate this king. So two things. He's going away to a far country. This, this nobleman's going away to a far country. I want you, people, some of my servants, I want you to do business in my name until I come back. But understand this, there are also people who hate me. Now, we should note this is a, the, the backstory to this um, because this would have been very relevant to the people of Jericho. So the backstory is this. Um, way back, long before Jesus was born, there was a guy by the name of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had to, before he became king over Judea, over what we would call Israel, before he became king, he had to go away to a far country to receive, I guess, the official declaration from um, the governing authorities that he would be king. So he goes and he, he goes to Mark Antony and Mark Antony basically confers the kingship to, to Herod and he becomes, he's Herod the Great. I don't know how he got the great name, but maybe he gave it to himself. Or, but anyways, he's Herod the Great. And he dies in 4 BC. All right. When he dies, he has three sons. And he gives his kingdom, he divides up his kingdom into three parts and he gives them to his three sons. We're not going to worry about two of them. We're only going to consider one of them. So Herod dies. He's got three sons. And he says, divide my kingdom up into three parts and it's going to be given to my son. And the one son that we're concerned with is a guy by the name of Archelaus. And if we click, we'll see a picture of Archelaus. So Archelaus was the guy who was given reign over the area of Jerusalem and Jericho and uh, uh, some, of, some of these areas. And Archelaus actually built himself a house in Jericho. So he's passing through Jericho. Archelaus had built himself a house there in Jericho. And Archelaus was a hated individual. The Jews despised Archelaus. And the reason they despised him is because when Archelaus... Um, ascended into power in that area, he killed 3,000 Jews during the Passover. That's why they hated him. So there came a day where Archelaus and his three brothers had to go to Rome to receive their papers that they were going to get a kingdom. And so off they go. Archelaus and his two brothers, and they're going to Rome to speak to Caesar. And Caesar's going to give them, I don't know, the official papers, the official documents, stamp it with the Roman seal, that you are the king over this area. The Jews did not want him to be king, and so they sent a delegation behind him who would also speak to Caesar and say, we do, no, do, we do not want this man to be king over us. 
So that's kind of the backstory. fills in a little detail. So when Jesus is telling us, a nobleman goes into a far country and he gives his, uh, he gives to his, uh, his followers, he gives to his, his servants um, uh, some resources to operate. But also notice this, there, are, there is a delegation that goes and follows them and says, we will, not have any, we will not have this man rule over us. We do not want him to be king. That's the backstory. This is where Jesus, this becomes a brilliant story. Jesus takes the history of what's going on and he applies it to himself and to uh, teach his disciples how we are to live. And so, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then returned. And he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. Basically, he gives them money. Uh, a minor was worth, I don't know, three to four months' wages, so it's not a huge amount of money, but substantial. And he basically says this, while I go away, I'm going to give you guys some resources, and I want you to engage in my business while I am gone. I want you to engage in business while I'm gone. Engage in business until I return. So in other words, these servants had the responsibility to carry out his business until he returns. That's what they're supposed to do. I got, I got a mina. I got three or four months' salary. Um, the king is, or the nobleman, he's not yet king. He becomes king when he gets the papers. He gives me his money, and I'm going to engage in his business until he comes back. That's my job. I am responsible to operate as a steward of his resources until he comes back. In other words, they are not commissioned to live for themselves, but rather they are to further the king's agenda. Now, remember, he's hated by the citizens. This nobleman's hated by the citizens. They say, we do not want this man to rule after, rule over us. We're going to send a delegation to protest this guy living, or this guy ruling over us. So that's kind of the backstory. That's kind of the, the, the story of the parable. Let's try to put it all together. I know I've just given you, thrown out a bunch of little pieces. Now let's see if we can put it all together and see if it makes some, a little more sense. First of all, citizens hate the king. First one, citizens hate the king. Number two, servants are to engage in business. They are to engage in the king's business until he returns. A little background might be helpful here. Political instability was, I mean, we live in a really politically stable country. Even if you don't like the way things are. It's politically very stable. That was not the case in the first century. Kings kind of came and went. Rulers kind of came and went. Very politically unstable. But I want you, my servants, to engage in my business until I come back. There's no guarantee he's coming back. There's no guarantee in this political scenario that he's even going to get a kingship. So to engage in the king's business is to take a risk. It is to take a risk that he's actually going to come back with authority. Also, it is a risk because he's hated. So in other words, I am going to engage in business for the king and I'm going to set up the king's business in a hostile environment. Like this. So I am going to set up a shop. The king's flower shop or the king's pet store or the king's whatever. The king's Walmart. 
the King Superstore. And it's got the name of the king on it. But the people hate the king. And in the political scenario, as the, the, the listeners are hearing this, there's no guarantee that this man is going to actually get his kingship because Archelaus did not get a kingship. There's no guarantee that he's going to get this kingship. So here's the thing I want you to do. I want you to engage in my business until I come back. Folks, as disciples of Christ, first of all, we can be certain of his return. We also know that he is the king, but here's our point. We are to establish a Christian testimony. We are to engage in the king's business in the midst of hostility. That in the midst of those people who despise the king has no bearing on our responsibility and our privilege to operate the king's business. So we're to go set up the king's business. We're to do the king's business, despite the fact, in, in full recognition, that people don't like the king. So we represent the king in the midst of a hostile environment. Does that kind of make sense? So we are to live life not for ourselves, but for the king and for his kingdom. He has given us, he has given resources that we might now go and operate and function on behalf of the king for the good of the king in the midst of people who don't like the king. That's what we're to do. That's, that's the gist of this parable. And there's quite a delay. The king hasn't come back for quite some time. I don't know when he will. But I think this speaks to us the need for endurance. In other words, the Christian walk is not, to overuse a cliche, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. The Christian life is one that, it's one of long endurance. So when we engage in the king's affairs, understand he may not come back tomorrow. His return may, we may not be alive before his coming. But we're to engage in his business. Take his resources. He's given us his resources and now live in light of the, of, of the king. So we are not to live our own lives for our own self, but for the king and his kingdom. And this is, I, I would argue, this is our joy. It is a joyful thing to do the king's business because our reward will come from him. It will not come. Um, it's not about our business. It's not about our doing things. So I hope you kind of get this idea of, this, of, of using the king's resources to establish the name of the king, to make the king glorious and well-known and to carry out his business. I am not saying, and I don't think any of you are taking it this way, but I'm not saying that you need to go open a retail store or something like that and call it the, the king's pet store or the king's Walmart or anything like that. You're to take the king's resources and use them for the purpose and for the glory of the king. That's the idea. So, Anyways, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they, what they gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good, and good servant. 
Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So the first servant comes, basically returns, and now it's like, I want you to give me a, give an account. Open the books. Let's see what's going on. And the first servant, this is really, really telling. The first servant is, first of all, Lord. Lord. You are the king, and I am not. I am your humble servant, and I have... You are my master. You are my king. This is really one of the first steps of the Christian faith is recognizing that Jesus is king and we're not. So he gives him honor. And the first thing he does is give the king honor. And then I really think this is interesting. Lord, your mina. Your mina. You gave it to me, but it's not my mina. It belongs to you. Everything I have belongs to you. That mina is yours. And then the, the next interesting thing, look at this. Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He does not say, Lord, I made ten more minas with your mina. Your mina is the thing that produced. You gave me the mina and it is the mina that did the production. It is your mina that produced fruit. The mina is a gift with inherent fruitfulness. Putting it to use is what's going to make it produce. How do you make the mina produce? Put it to use. It is not necessarily the, the great skill of the servant, but rather in his willingness to put to use the, the thing that the king has given him. So, Lord... Your mina, everything we have belongs to God. There is nothing you have that is not God's. Nothing I have that doesn't belong to God. The gifts, the abilities, even the things that I don't have are things that God has not given to me. Everything that I have, everything that I am, whether it be a physical possession, whether it be an intellectual possession, whether it be whatever drive or anything that has been given to me by God and as his servant, all that you have has been given to you by him. It is his mina. Now use it and do business um, on his behalf. In other words, establish his kingdom. Make his name great. Let his name be seen as glorious. Let his name be holy and acceptable and seen as beautiful and wonderful in the midst of a hostile environment. Use what God has given you to glorify his name until he comes back. That's what I want you to do. Lord, look what your mind has done. It has produced. The response of the king is this. First of all, the commendation. Well done. Well done. Good job. And then notice this. Why the commendation? The reason for the commendation is this. Because you have been faithful... Well done. Why? Because you have been faithful. Notice what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say, I think, is, is of more interest than what he does say. He doesn't say, because you have been profitable. This is not about profit. And we live in a capitalistic society, which is fine, and everything is about profit. That's great. This is not about profit. This is not about... This is all about being faithful. You have been faithful. I am rewarding you. I am commending you because you have taken what I have given you and you have used it to glorify my name. 
I'm commending you because you are faithful. And so this is a call to faithfulness. And you can say, well, I don't have very much. Or I do such and such, but I don't see much fruit from it. Be faithful in the things that God has given us. And the reward, faithfulness, now results in future responsibility. The idea of what happens in the eternal state, in the, in the eternal kingdom, and how that works, I'll be honest with you, I, uh, I wrestle with some of those ideas, but it does seem like we will have responsibilities and we will have jobs and tasks in the eternal kingdom. What it looks like, I don't really know. I can speculate and take a few stabs at. Um, I'm certain that's not an area of expertise for me. I don't know if it's an area of expertise for anybody. I just know that in the eternal state, when we are... Um, living forever on a recreated, on a new heaven and a new earth, there seem to be some responsibilities. In fact, um, Paul talks about, you'll judge angels. So there, he says, look at you've been profitable in this life. I'm sorry, you've been faithful in this life. And so in the age to come, you will be given certain privileges. So that's the first, that's the first servant. The second servant we, uh, is very abbreviated. And he said to him, um, <clears throat> the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five, five minas. So um, your mina, again, your mina has made five more minas. It has done what it's supposed to do. It has borne fruit. I think when we use the gifts that God has given us, fruit will be born. That's just a natural result of the thing that God has given us. It will bear fruit. You will encourage another person. It will bless another person. They will be able to um, praise God in difficult circumstances. But the minor produces. And so it's very similar. There will be a, a future reward. Because of your present faithfulness, there is a future reward. And then we should note this third servant. And Jesus seems to focus on this third servant because he spends a lot of time with him gives very little time to the first and second servant, and then he gives a lot of time to this third servant, so we should probably consider the contrast here. This third servant basically says, Lord, um, I hid your money. I took your mina, I took the three to four months wages that you gave me, and I put it in a handkerchief, and I hid it. Kept it laid away in a handkerchief. We, we, we should note uh, a couple of things on this. That this hiding it in a handkerchief was both careless and useless. It was careless because in those days, if you wanted to hide money, you didn't just put it away in your house. It would be easy to rob. You buried it. So if you were going to keep it safe, you, were, you would at least bury it. He didn't even keep it safe. He was careless. And he was useless because... There's nothing, just nothing. You gave me three to four months wages and I did not use it for any benefit of yours whatsoever. I just hid it away. Nobody touched it. Nobody saw it. Nobody even knew I had it. They're completely in the dark that I had your resources. Nobody even knew that I, was used, I had resources for you, I did not honor you. I did not glorify you. There was no desire to honor the king. He was unwilling to take sides. Well, probably hedging his bets. 
well, if I hide it, when he comes back, I'll give it back to him. But if he doesn't come back, well, then at least I won't be seen as a traitor to those who hate the king and I'll be safe. Basically, this guy's lukewarm, trying to play both sides. Then he gives this reason. And the reason is this. Lord, here's your mind now. Here's the reason. I was afraid of you. And I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. In other words, the reason I didn't do anything with your resources that you generously gave to me is because you are a hard, severe, unjust person. There is no love. There is no interest in his cause. In fact, he doesn't even know the king. Here's the interesting thing. Lord, I took your mind and, and, and I put it aside in a handkerchief. Um, I've done nothing with it and it's your fault. You're a hard man. It's your fault. It's your problem. Boy, isn't this just like Adam? Isn't this just like us? It's somebody else's fault. It must be the king's fault. If you weren't such a hard unjust, unfair, cruel person, I would have served you. So what does the king do? He says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. If it's true that I'm as cruel as you say, first of all, um, his words condemn him in the, in the sense that the king has proved not to be unjust or cruel. Because what happened when, when the other... The other two servants showed an increase. Did he take it away from them? Did he slap them around? No, he gave them more. So right off the bat, he has a wrong impression of who the king is. So the king says, fine, I'll condemn you with your own words. Here's the thing. If I'm as cruel as you say, you would have at least sought to gain my favor in some way, wouldn't you? If I am such a mean, cruel, horrible individual, you would seek to be my ally and not my enemy. It makes no sense, if I'm as evil as you say I am as cruel, that you would, that you would act in a way that would produce unjustness and unfairness in me. That doesn't make any sense. Your own words condemn you. This is like the person who says this. Well... If God is the type of God who sends people to hell who don't believe in him, I'm not going to believe in that type of God. Your own words condemn you. If God is the type of God who sends people to hell who do not, well, he doesn't send them, they're going there, he just lets them go their course, but does not rescue them from hell, if he is that type of God, would you want to be on his good side? If he is the ruler over all things and he has authority over your eternal destiny, wouldn't you seek to be his ally, his friend, and not his enemy? To say otherwise is condemning yourself. First of all, you have a wrong idea about who God is. But even if he is that way, you're an idiot. Sorry. You're a fool. Maybe that's nicer. Never know who you're going to offend these days. You're a foolish idiot for not seeking to ally yourself with him. And maybe this hits home to me because that's how I was when I was an unbeliever. I believed that I didn't believe that there was a God who existed, but this was my thought. 
my thought was, if there is a God who, who I hear about, and if he is who he is, says he is, and if it's true that he could crush me like a bug, I would want to be on his side. I don't believe that that God exists, so I'll live my life the way I want to live. But if he were to ever prove himself that he really and truly did exist and live, and he, that's who he was, then I do not want to be his enemy. That just seems like it makes so much sense. That's just pragmatic. It's like, well, if he's the king of all, I want to be on his side. This is what he's saying. First of all, it's untrue. Your characterization of me is untrue, proven by the way I treated the previous two servants. But if it's true that that's the way I am, if that were to be true, your own words condemn you. You're acting in a idiotic, foolish way. And so, people have, so, to take his one mina, remember all three, all of the servants, all ten servants got one mina each. Take his mina and give it to the guy who has ten. And of course the response is, that's not fair. You see that? It's like, what? That guy's already got, actually he's got eleven, because he had one, he made ten, that gives him eleven. The other guy only has six. And you're taking the one and giving it to the... Now he's got 12? That's not fair. Perhaps the best way to explain this is grace is abundant and grace is not fair. The servant was given more of what he did not earn. Grace is abundant. And... God has given to us, everything that God has given us is that which we did not earn. And if he gives you more, it's not because you deserved it or earned it. Be faithful with the things that God has given. So let me give you a kind of a summary of this, the second part we've, we've been in. We see these three servants. Two of them are genuine. One is false. People have, and I've wrestled with this and, and wondered, was this just a guy who was a Christian was a follower, was a faithful, was a servant, but just acted unfaithfully, and that he will enter into the kingdom just without any, I guess, any reward. And, and I find difficulty with that. He, he's a false believer. He, he's one who has all the appearances of a faithful follower. And the reason being is because, number one, he obviously doesn't know the king. He calls him cruel. What servant, what Christian calls God cruel, unjust, and wicked? The second reason is because Christ calls him a wicked servant. Christ does not call any of his servants wicked servants. This man is a man who, by all appearances, looks as though he is a faithful follower. In other words, he is associated with Jesus superficially, but his true nature is revealed when his stewardship is evaluated. There are many who are associated with the king's community and have some responsibility, but do not love the king. They do not trust him. He is a false follower. The first two are true followers. They have been faithful with what the king has given them. The third one has hated the king, doesn't know the king, and his true colors, he appeared to be a servant, but on that final day when the accounting was done, it was shown that he was not a true follower. He was not a true servant of the king. And our churches are filled with people like this. And I pray that today, if you are here today, that you would make an assessment. Am I a follower of the king? Is it my desire to be faithful to him? Do I know who he is? Do I love him? 
Now, am I saying that we are following him perfectly? No, because all of us have our, our failures and our flaws. But we're taking the things that God has given us and we are using them for his honor and his glory. In other words, I'm going to live my life not for myself, but I'm going to live my life for the king. That's what I'm going to do. And whatever resources I have, I'm going to dedicate them. I'm going to use them for the glory of the king. So if that means that I open up the king's pet shop, it will be I will sell the best pets. I will sell them at a fair price. I will make sure I'm generous with the proceeds that the king gives me. If God has gifted me with a particular ability to do something, I will use that to honor the king. And finally, he comes down to this last group, and this has caused a number of people to struggle. But as for these enemies of mine, those who hated the king, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. <clears throat> um, many have tried to temper that, saying, well, the parable doesn't really go on and say that that actually happened. Perhaps that's, maybe they, they were given opportunities for, I don't know. All I know is that the end for those who rebel against the king is not a good one. And if the parable, there's something that still needs to happen, I would just say to you, there's still time to repent. There's still time to call upon the name of the Lord. He has not returned yet. He has not returned for the world yet, and he has not returned for you personally yet. Remember, there's two things. The Lord's going to return for this world. But more likely than not, he's going to come for you before that you will individually breathe your last breath and, and stand before him. But right now we're all breathing. Hearts are still pumping and we're still sentient and cognizant. So given that fact, this would be the time if you are an enemy of the king that I would encourage you, the end isn't good. Whatever it is, it isn't good. And I would call upon you call upon the king who is generous and who is kind and who is merciful and whose grace is greater than whatever you think that you have done. And he is willing and ready and able to forgive you, adopt you into his family, and make you his own. And if he is the king who has authority to do what he says in verse 27. And I would suggest to you, you want to be on his side. You want to be his ally, not his enemy. So I am going to implore and urge you to consider these things and call upon his name. So I'll conclude with this. <clears throat> God, by grace, has given us what is necessary to fulfill his commands and honor him until the return of Christ. God has entrusted you, God has entrusted you with his gifts. Some of you, we can just say maybe they're gifts of the Spirit. Maybe he's given you faith. Maybe he's given you encouragement. Maybe he's given you um, a variety of hospitality or a variety of gifts. Use them to glorify God until he comes back. Maybe God has given you um, great material resources. Be generous and use them to glorify the King, not just buy a whole bunch of toys. 
use them to glorify and honor the king. Whatever God has given you, maybe he's given you patience. Whatever mina he has given you, use it to honor him and glorify him. Second thing we learn from this is public faithfulness is expected. Publicly faithful to the Lord. Second, humility or third, humility is appropriate. It is the Lord. So when there is production, realize that whatever produce you produce, it is it requires humility because everything you have came from the Lord. And I guess maybe our final question is this, which one of these are you? There are three types of people in this world. Faithful followers, false followers, and foes. I guess we should ask, which one are you? Are you faithful? Are you false? Are you a foe? If you're anything but faithful, um, and you're, you're assured of that, and you're assured of it, not out of your own mind, but you look at God's Word and you see, what is a faithful person according to God's Word? Not what do I think, but what does God's Word say? Faithful, false, or a foe? If you're a false, if you're concerned that you're false or a foe, I would love to talk with you um, today, this afternoon, this week. Um, love to sit down, have a cup of coffee, and talk about how, how can we make sure we go from foe to faithful? Because all of us were foes. All of the faithful in here, if you count yourself as faithful, there was a time when you were a foe. You went from foe to faithful. It's not impossible for, if you're a foe, to go into the faithful category. And I'd love to sit down and talk with you about what it takes to go from foe to faithful. If you think you're false, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about, first of all, uh, is that true? And second of all, what do we need to do? How do we set the course to become faithful? produce the fruits that Christ has called us to. So with that, let's stand and we'll pray and sing our final song.